Boom, what's up everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakyan. Very excited to be talking about media, live streams, drones, and so much more. We have Eddie Codell joining us on the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on, Eddie. We're really excited for this episode. You and Ron have been great friends for a long time, and I'm really glad to have been introduced to you and your long, long time of work in this field. We're really excited to unpack this together. For those who don't know, Eddie Codell is a media and live stream producer, drone pilot, and founder of the Flying Robot International Film Festival. And you can find the links in the bio below to eddie.com as well as his YouTube channel and his Twitter profile. Eddie, let's start things off with one of our favorite questions to ask our guests. What are your thoughts on the direction of our world? Direction of our world? Um, it's rotational, right? Don't, aren't we in a, uh, don't we revolve around the sun? I think it's, I think it's in orbit direction. Uh, I, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the trite answer, but the, or the, that's the scientific answer. <laughs> um, you know, I think we're going to survive the fucked up shit that's going on in the world right now. Uh, I, I want to believe that the institutions that we have created will outlast the individuals who, um, who inhabit them. And, uh, and, and, I, and so I'm just going to leave it at that. Yeah. What do you think are some of the key principles that we need to embody to make sure that we make it? Um, compassion, understanding, um, going to other places. So I think a big problem with people, with Americans, is we don't travel. You know, we get so like locked up in our own world that you know, I feel like, yeah, um, being able to understand other people really is, is the big thing. Yeah, that's huge. We recently also learned that about well, apparently 1.3 out of the 1.4 billion people in China also haven't left China yet. So it's kind of correct. A and, and I don't, yes, and, and I don't mean to just say you know being very U.S. centric. I you know I'm not. Uh, I can't really speak for the rest of the world, but uh, obviously, yeah, there's a lot of people who don't even have the opportunity to do so. But um, I think yeah. those who are who have the ability to affect the way this world can. Um, you know, I think climate change is the biggest issue we have facing us right now, and uh, you know, the U.S. is going to be the, you know, one of the countries that's instrumental in deciding how the, that fate is going to play out. And uh, so, we do have a lot of responsibility in how we, how we proceed. Yeah. <laughs> Ron, is our logo is <laughs> from not moving? Oh, uh, oh, yeah. oh my God! Raw, Ronnie. Is the world is the world stopping? Let's get that logo. There oh, it yeah. is. I love it. Okay, so that was on Direction of Our World. Let's do Journey. Okay, so actually you told me you were born in London, which is really interesting. You spent the first five years there. Uh, not in, uh, first five years in Europe, but not in London. In Europe. Was, yeah. yeah. What was that like? Uh, well, I was really young at the time, so I don't remember a whole lot. But um, So I was in London for a year. I was in um, uh, Switzerland, uh, Geneva for, I think, a couple of years, and then in um, Denmark for a period of time. So my mother's Danish. My father is an American. They met in... Africa in the 60s. They had me in the late 60s uh, in, in London. Uh, my dad was, was working, for, was a, a journalist for the uh, Associated Press at the time. He was an international correspondent. Cool. Um, so he had just been um, uh, relocated to, uh, to the London office at the time that I was born. Um, and, uh, uh, and then at some point we ended up moving to Geneva. I think he, was, he, he ended up, uh, yeah, his job ended up moving him there. So moved there, my sister was born there. And then at some point we came back to the States um, when I was, yeah, around four or five. Uh, lived with my grandparents down in Florida at the time, West Palm Beach, yo. Um, and that's the only time I've ever lived, lived there or been there actually. Uh, but then we moved up to uh, the Nor Northern Virginia, D.C. area when I was, yeah, five years old. Uh, and uh, that's where I grew up, uh, is, is Arlington, Virginia, northern yeah. D.C. area. And uh, yeah, I was there until, um, until I moved out here in 97, so 
all my yeah school and everything was out there. And then, so what were some of those key moments from, that's an interesting story of your mom and dad meeting in Africa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a whole nother, we, we don't a whole nother story. Yeah, and I don't yeah. have all the facts 100% correct on that, but I can quickly say that my father was in the Peace Corps and then he was a journalist, um, both, both in Africa and Nigeria and in um, the Congo, actually. The Congo is where he yeah. was, um, where he met my mother. Where, where he was working as a journalist, and my mother was there at the time as well. Um, but, uh, you know, there was a dictator that took over at some point, and um, so a lot of the Western press was basically in, was, was, uh, told to leave after uh, Mobutu took over power in whatever year that was, 67, 68 or something. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. Pretty crazy. Like, my parents have a really interesting, sordid beginning to their life, and then after I came along, they became really boring. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, yeah. but how did, in D.C., what was going on with you growing up that got you interested in art and film? Um, I don't know. I mean, I've always been kind of, you know, artistically inclined, I guess, or just been, you know, in, into the arts. Like, when, you know, after I... No, I gra after I graduated college, I worked at the Alternative Weekly newspaper in uh, D.C. for four years, um, running. Um, I, I was actually running their network, so I was a bit of a nerd, and I, you know, I, um, uh, I, I knew computer stuff. Uh, so I was the guy running their. I, I was the system administrator, which is what they call DevOps these days, uh, and the um, uh, webmaster at the time. So basically, managing the, the whole infrastructure, the technical infrastructure for the. Um, for the uh, newspaper. And actually, just as a quick aside, that's how I ended up coming to California. Yeah. So my boss at the time, um, who also was, uh, our company, the Washington City Paper was the paper I'm talking about, and it was also owned by the, um, the, the, the owners of the City Paper also owned the Chicago Reader at the time. And my boss, um, who was one of the, the, the owners of the Reader, uh, sent me out to California to a desktop publishing conference yeah. in 1996 or so. <laughs> And that was my first time coming to California, and I was like, immediately I knew, I, you know, I'd already known prior to that that I probably was a West Coast inclined person. And uh, so I came out here and I did the full like three, four week uh, drive around the state, camp, explore kind of thing. And uh, you know, after the conference was over, and, and I knew immediately that I was going to, yeah, it was going to happen. It was, yeah. it, so a year later, it, it happened. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, yeah. What, and that's, it's a beautiful way to do it is to come here and do the whole um, four weeks of going around the state and right. seeing its beauty. And also just, like you said, that desktop publishing conference was, yeah. you know, here, it was the cutting edge. Right, at the was time. here at the time. And so then you wanted to kind of gravitate towards that edge and wanting to be here and seeing what Silicon Valley was going to emerge next. Yeah. I mean, at the time it was, you know, I, it, it kind of, there, there was kind of a confluence of all the things that were interesting to me at the time, you know, West Coast, um, you know, beautiful, beautiful environment, um, laid back culture. No snow. Um, no snow. <laughs> that's true. The, the winters and the summers were a lot more reasonable in most parts of the state here. Yes, yes. Um, you know, the, the, the history of, of, you know, the 60s and sort of the countercultural movement in, in the Bay Area definitely spoke to me on some level. And, um, and then the Internet, the, the rise of technology and the Internet was, was you know, definitely was, was all part of that. And so, you know, my first job coming out here was working for a web design company. And I was their sysadmin running, um, running, you know, running their Unix systems and their, you know, the printers and things like that. And, um, and uh, yeah, and then that, that and I ended up basically working at a number of companies like that, working as, as um, initially as a, as a sysadmin, but then moving into... Um, back-end infrastructure architecture, so it worked as a, uh, a systems engineer for a startup where we would, um, I think the last, well, anyway, a bunch of different startups doing tech stuff until about, I don't know, um, well, it's, it's, 
that has been kind of a, a thread throughout my whole existence. But uh, in, in those early days, you know, I was working as somebody who was staring at a screen pretty much all day long. And that kind of got old after a while. And I was like, yeah. you know, I want something that's a little more exciting, a little more content oriented, a little bit more, that's a shitty way to say it, but a little bit more, um, you know, uh, that had a little more, uh, yeah, art to it, a little bit more excitement to it. And, and so, um, you know, and I still love typing away on a screen for sure, but I, uh, I didn't find hanging out in data centers, uh, you know, yeah. installing systems where this was a way that I wouldn't spend a lot of my time. And then what was going on in like 97 to 2007 before you really got started with the video production? What was happening in the Silicon Valley then and what happened with the dot-com? Right. Yeah. Well, my, so my first job was, was um, at this web design studio I was telling you about uh, based in uh, South Park here in San Francisco. And at the time, South Park was the home of... It was Multimedia Gulch is what it was called at the time. So at, at that time, or just prior to that time, um, the, the big industry was making CD-ROMs of, you know, um, of, of uh, anything you think of, so, uh, of um, encyclopedias, uh, Encarta, uh, and um, multimedia sort of productions of rich content. That, that was the way to make rich content was to basically, and when we say rich, we're talking about, you know, maybe 8-bit color um, on, you know, like a Mac Plus or something, you know, the little fat Mac. I mean, this is, this is you know, way, light years away from what we have today. And, um, but this is what the industry was at the time, was, was, these, was you know, shrink rack packaged um, software mm -hmm. um, experiences that were um, packaged on CD-ROMs. And so that was the area when that was happening. At the time that I showed up, the internet was just becoming um, a viable medium for, um, for publishing and advertising, actually. So Wired Magazine was, you know, right down the street. And I got to know a lot of friends who, who worked there over time. And at Wired and Organic, which was in the same building, they basically invented, you know, they created the first website, created the first rich media websites, and then the first advertising, the first banner ads were, were created mm -hmm. there as well. So sort of the beginning of the commercial web really, I think, started in that, that neighborhood. Um, and, and I was there to see a lot of that. And so, you know, we, I ended up working for companies that were building sites um, uh, for, you know, for the, for the industry as it was emerging. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I was lucky to sort of participate and see a lot of the emergence of various startups. I mean, I don't know a lot, if a lot of people know this, but, you know, some of the, the biggest names in, um, in, you know, Silicon Valley tech companies these days started right there in South Park. So yeah. Twitter, for example, started right there um, uh, on South Park, as did um, Instagram. It's actually out of the same offices, as a matter of fact. Um, and so the, the, a lot of that there was just a lot of like kind of brain power and um, enthusiasm just like located right in that like three block area. And yeah, taking us all the way to <laughs> pa packaging the CD-ROMs and shrink wrap yeah. and sharing those around the world and then the just the complexities around like what we see now in 2019 is we don't always look back 10 15 years at what companies used to be like and that I think gives us a really unique idea into the journeys that people take and the journeys that these uh, organizations end up taking over periods of more than a decade to try and provide the world with some sort of a utility, um, some sort of a good or service that, that makes the world better and, and it's good to see it from that point and that was also at the time that you started doing video production. Actually, you know what, it's, um, I, there's a part that, we, that I 
forgot to mention earlier when we were just discussing some things. Um, so I, one of the things I think that got me into the more t artistic side of things was um, the Webzine Conference, which uh, was something that I was involved in starting in 97, 98, 99, 2000, 2001, uh, and then again in 2005. And what that was was a basically a day-long or an eventually a two-day-long conference on independent publishing on the internet. Mm -hmm. So we were, you know, the initial idea is that we were kind of an antidote to um, to the monetization of eyeballs. And the idea was, well, let's use the web for creativity, for storytelling, for things that aren't about necessarily making money, community. And, uh, and, you know, and a lot of people who were part of the, the, those early webzines um, went on to you know, create amazing things um, and, and big companies and whatever um, out of that. So I don't know if we totally won because you know, um, ultimately capitalism still <laughs> was the, the big attractor coming out of that. But ultimately, I think w what we, what, what I realized quickly when going to work in 97 was that there was this big push to kind of, you know, as there is today, there's a lot of people who are coming into, you know, San Francisco and Silicon Valley to make their fortune, work at a startup and make their six, di you know, six digit um, salaries and, and uh, hopefully cash out on an IPO or something. That sentiment was very much alive then as well, and I think what, what we were trying to do with Webzine is provide sort of an alternative to that, to say, hey, it doesn't have to always be about you know, grinding out 60 hours, 80 hours a week to crank on someone else's project that may or may not um, make you rich, but hey, maybe you, know, you, could, you can actually just do a side project, do something on your own um, that, is, that you're passionate about. And so that's really what Webzine was all about, was to create an avenue for that. And that is what got me into the more, I think, uh, creative side of things is, is actually is, is Webzine, ultimately. Oh, so wow. since we're talking about Webzine, I've got to give two quick shout outs to my friend Ryan Janelle, who was the, uh, the motion graphics creator of the, uh, the intro that we just saw in the beginning there. He worked with me at that very first company that I worked at, at Phoenix Pop, uh, and then has been a, a friend of mine and collaborator ever since uh, at Webzines and in, um, and in Flying Robot, actually. Uh, and then also Srini, uh, who is uh, most famous for creating the website unamerican.com, which was a, uh, a sticker company. Uh, and basically they made click type stickers that would say things like fuck work or, um, you know, I can't even remember them now, but basically there were slogans, right? And uh, he, uh, he kind of founded that and uh, is um, the person who basically found the money to create the first webzine. Basically went to Adobe and said, hey, we got this great idea for a community conference. Um, can you give us some money for it? And Adobe was like, sure, sounds great. Here's 1,500 bucks. And so we threw a party for ourselves in 1997. <laughs> this is kind of how it started. So thank you, Adobe. <laughs> <laughs> I love the, the, the that, that definitely tells a bit on the art and the community side and also kind of tells a bit on the interest in decentralization and open sourcing and these types of mentalities right. that are now starting to rebubble up kind of like the more counterculture um, movement, which in many ways I think is where hopefully that, that we're heading um, and that we can bring together some of these unity mentalities um, with us. Then, then did then in 2006, you were telling us about the South Park area and how that was kind of this gulch of, what was it again? The multimedia gulch. Multimedia yeah. gulch. And so you ended up producing a show called Lunch Meat. Right. So Multimedia Gulch was really during the CD-ROM era, which I would say is more about the mid-90s. But um, Lunch Meat came around in 2005. Um, so just to back up a little bit, I did a thing called Geek Entertainment TV, uh, which I don't think I sent you any clips of that. But that was a, uh, a web series that uh, I started This is uh, yeah, with... Um, 
my friend and collaborator Irina Slutsky, who is uh, the woman, this one right here actually. On the right, and yep. you're on the left, and then here's the three. Right, so just, just a quick aside, uh, Geek Entertainment TV was a, was a three or four year project where we went around and interviewed uh, interesting people, friends, startup, startup individuals or whatever, at parties, and we, we were kind of more like the tongue-in-cheek, kind of daily show-esque, that's kind of where we sort of took our, our cues from in some ways, um, uh, way of approaching this audience, right? And so uh, in 2005, um, the both of us got hired by a company to make a video, to, to, to continue doing our show, but also to make new videos. And so one of the shows that we did was called Lunch Meet, Lunch Meet spelled E-E-T. Yeah. And um, it's uh, Meeting Geeks Over Lunch was, was sort of meeting the... Meeting Geeks Over yeah. Lunch. So I believe this is uh, episode like number 12 or 13. Uh, and yeah, we were, we were meeting the Twitter guys. Um, and, so that was uh, Jack, Biz, Jack, Evan. Jack, yeah, that's, yeah. Biz, yeah Ev, Evan, Jack, and Biz, Biz there. Yeah. So they were sort of... And this is 2006. This is 2006 at the time, yeah. right? So I think Noah had been pushed out. And this is in South Park. This is, in, uh, this is the office that also was the Instagram office later. Um, and so yeah, they, this is 2006. So I think uh, it, it hadn't even been a year yet that Twitter was around. And um, you know, we just approached them and said, hey, can we do, can do an interview on, um, on, you know, with you guys? And they said, sure. Uh, and and the, the sort of the format of the show was we would interview founders and then we would do a watch, uh, uh, like an on-camera demo of whatever the product was. So that's what we did here. We we'd interviewed these guys for about half half the uh, show and then um, if you cut to the next clip. And on, then yeah, this is so cool. This is uh, this is what Twitter looked like in 2006, I think uh, late 2006. Uh, and this is Jack giving us a demo of um, of Twitter at the time. With and, his 90 followers. Uh, 90 followers, 123 friends. <laughs> Um, yep, and, uh, and at the time you had a, everybody showed up as a little icon on the side. Yeah. Uh, there's a few interesting things here. You could, DMing was this little drop down box. Uh, SMS was a big thing at the time too. Yeah. So you could actually use, you could uh, text to 40404 and uh, a username and you could actually text to, uh, using basically text messaging to send to Twitter. To Twitter, yeah. 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 And yeah. that eventually went away, but that was yeah. an integral part of it for so long. And uh, yeah, and in some of the, and at the time, I think the main feed updated like once every few seconds or once every, actually no, every few minutes. So, you know, there were updates when we were doing the interview because some of the other employees would go ahead and, you know, put a tweet mm -hmm. in to sort of, you know, show us that something was coming up live. But um, as you can see, Blaine is one of the early, early creators of uh, what I think was the first engineer there. Um, and uh, yeah, so these are all, these are all early, all early Twitter people. I think what was really key in 2006, it looks like, is that people started wanting to take the pulse on what was happening on the planet and between humans. Yeah. And then that was kind of where these things emerged from, is wanting to get that. Also, if you notice, the way these tweets are, are coming out, uh, they're, they're answering the prompt, what are you doing? Yeah, what are you doing? Right? Yeah. Which is, so, so it was a way to prompt people, to get people to say something. And so if you, if you look, most everything is, is in response to that question. Whereas today, people tweet anything and everything, usually yeah. you know, promoting something. Usually or, or, promotions. Yeah. Usually or, promotions. Or railing against something. Or, or putting trying their, to awaken people with conscious content. Stuff sure, like that. there's plenty yeah, of things. All different types of stuff. Or demeaning um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <yeah>, <laughs> congresspeople. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then, and then in starting wars, yeah, in, uh, or or potentially getting the content out that um, shows the other perspective when it's trying to be, um, yeah, squelched. So that's yeah, good too. What about um, what, what about what was happening in live streaming at this time? Because you, both you and Ron were getting involved with right. live streaming 
in the earlier days? Right. So uh, I got uh, around. Think of the time frame here. I worked for okay. So I worked for a startup company in two thousand one called Fast Forward Networks that made um, scalable backend infrastructure for live stream um, technology. So the, basically, it was a way to broadcast using the internet in a very efficient way. Um, that company no longer exists. Uh, they, our biggest competitor at the time was Akamai, which is now the eight hundred pound gorilla in that world. Um, but that and and, and, it, and this is. Again, when I was still more on the tech side of things, I didn't really have anything to do with content at the time. This was all, I, I was maintaining servers and building systems and helping to basically build that infrastructure that, that um, our technology was, was um, enabling. And, um, but in 2005, I started getting into media production, and so we did Geek Entertainment TV for a few years and then Lunch Meet. Uh, and then I, coming out of Lunch Meet, one of the people I interviewed was the CEO of Ustream at the time, John Hamm. And he basically offered me a job uh, shortly after <laughs> the interview. And uh, I was like, that sounds cool. And uh, I ended up working for Ustream for about a year, uh, running their production services. So I was basically managing everything having to do with, with their live stream technology at the time with uh, event-based event stuff. So and were you able to stream to a content delivery network? Yeah, well, Ustream was a content delivery network. It was, was their own CDN. It was their own CDN. Yeah, so Ustream was a technology enabler um, for live streaming, uh, and it was it, it was a tech, it's basically like Twitch is today. Yeah, so cool. Twitch was Justin TV, which was a competitor of ours back in the day, um, and uh, UStream existed for many years actually before IBM finally bought them out like two years ago. So they still the, te the technology still exists, but they are um, now IBM. Uh, I, and I definitely had the coolest job at the time because my role was to basically since I understood how to stream, um, I would take their you know, I would take our platform um, and uh, go to locations and stream an event. So, for example, um, I uh, Zynga was like putting out a new Mafia Wars thing, and they wanted to blow up an armored truck in the middle of the uh, Nevada desert. So we needed to live stream that, and it was going to be live streamed into the game somehow. So this is like a really high-profile thing. At the last minute, they say, "Oh, also we're going to have Snoop Dogg come out and actually push the button to blow up the truck." I'm like, cool. <laughs> and uh, so, Pressure. so they sent me yeah. out to basically be the the, the the producer for this thing, and we're out in the middle of nowhere, you know, 30, 40 miles outside of Las Vegas, where there's very little cell phone signal. But that's the only way we were able to actually get the yeah. video back was using these these live view backpacks. Yeah. Um, and back and they existed back then, but they were you know they were they were. Um, uh, they work quite well, but you know, the amount of data we were pushing was much smaller than today. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and then we had Snoop come out, and I had to, I had to mic him up and everything, and uh, and then he, uh, you know, there's the countdown, and he pushed the button, and the armor truck blows up, and fake money goes everywhere, and um, anyway, so that was you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Then there was the one week uh, tour also with um, the um, uh, Sports Illustrated swimsuit models. So they were basically flying from New York to Las Vegas, and we had to live stream them doing a bunch of events. So they had me there as the person who was kind of the interface between the client and, uh, um, and their own people. So just, anyway, it was a whirlwind year of, of experience. But I, I uh, you know, I, I'd say I really got my chops into live streaming as a result of, of my time at Ustream. And just in general, the idea yeah. of live streaming uh, today is just so much a part of our nomenclature, especially in Silicon Valley. But then when you look at other parts of the world that still have, don't even have access to devices and the internet, um, they still have no idea what this is. So this kind of reminds me of what it was like 10 years ago when you guys are like talking about live streaming and other people are like, what is that? Right. And so 
it's like the path of technological development in just 10 years is now multi-camera live streams to two, three CDNs, no problem. Um, yeah, right. like this yeah. is crazy the pace that these things are moving. You can see Ron's set behind Ron and all of the old tech that he still has from 20 plus years ago. Yeah. And what we have now is just moving so, so fast. And you, one of the things that we also wanna make sure is that when people learn skills, that those skills don't obsolete. Like if you had to spend a year at Ustream learning about how that technology works, at least some of the skills can be then taken with you and apply to future live streams and productions. Oh, totally. But if you yep. learn just a specific tool, like if all of a sudden Adobe Creative Suite ended up not existing anymore, so many people that know how to use Premiere and Photoshop and all these tools would have to go and relearn how to use other tools. There'd be some carryover, but these are the things that we wanna make sure that people are filling their, their, their essence with that can actually be applied into later stages just because tools expire so fast, technologies expire so fast right. now with these periods. And you, I also just want to mention with the with the lunch meets that you were doing and stuff, it's really interesting to be able to do things like look back and see how people behaved like, <laughs> like 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. It's not saying that their ethics from 10 or 15 years ago are the same as they are now because they're definitely not. They're sure. humans. They've evolved 10, 15 years as humans, but you can still go back and enjoy I actually highly recommend people. That video has like 15,000 views. It should have millions of views because people should be interested in how people behaved um, back then that are running a company as big, yeah, yeah. as big as they are now. So how about the Flying Robot International Film Festival? So you kind of did video production, live streaming, droning. You got into droning and you had a cool video actually. You had a, um, the drone's eye view of the world on your, on your um, channel. Right. One of them was Burning Man in 2013, which is really beautiful video. Mm -hmm. um, you've also taken videos of things like the Mission District here, Iceland, Cleveland, Portland, all these different cities as well. Um, and then I guess you got so into droning that you were like, I'm going to start an international film festival around these flying robots. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, in 2013, um, I, uh, I was at an event and I saw a friend of mine who had, the, uh, had a drone shoot a video. Um, uh, and uh, later, uh, you know, I was there at the time and he was flying, you know, flying the drone and capturing the, the footage. Um, and I remember seeing the video later and, and being blown away by the simplicity yeah. and the beauty of what he was able to do with it. And I'm like, I gotta get myself one of those. And so I ended up getting a drone in 2013. And back then, you know, it was way different. Like there, things were not integrated into a cohesive system like they are now. So back then you could buy a drone that could fly, but didn't have a camera on it. It didn't have telemetry. It didn't have, it could, it could stay in the air and it could come home. That was the two biggest features of the, the original DJI Phantom 1 so this is the white drone yep. you know with the little legs on it and so that one that's what I ended up taking the Burning Man that year to to take that footage how and did you attach a camera then? so yeah. that, so back in those days the way what you had to do is you had to get a GoPro and you had to put it on you uh, if you wanted stable footage you would put it on a gimbal, gimbal. so a motorized yeah. gimbal which again these things are you know you got the handheld ones and DJI makes. Yeah. but the time these were third-party gimbals that you had to basically wire on to um, onto the drone yourself, and then you have to balance it with the camera and make sure that it would, it would, it would, all, it would you know, be balanced correctly so that the footage would look okay. Um, and then not only that, once you had that all set up, there, you still had no way of actually seeing the video 
um, on a screen while you're flying. So you just kind of guess that you're doing it, right? which is exactly what I did at Burning Man. I had, I which ended up being one. great, yeah. Um, and, and then, uh, so then the next thing to do was to add that on. So you end up adding a, a video transmission system that yep. takes the video out of the GoPro and sends it down to a receiver that you can see while flying. Now that stuff is all integrated in, in a cohesive system. It's crazy. And, but back then, yeah, you had to piece it all together. You had to know how to solder. You had to know how to, you know, go down rabbit holes or forums to figure yeah. out how to you know, troubleshoot things. And, um, and you know, and I've always loved doing that kind of stuff. So it was, so it was a fun challenge for me. Um, and then I immediately found other people that were doing the same thing. And um, uh, yeah, brought, like I said, brought it out to Burning Man 2013, did that video, uh, got a, a million and a half views, I think, in the first week on, on, um, wow. on YouTube. Yep. Yeah. Kind of blew it up. I'm like, oh, maybe there's something here. Maybe I should do more of these. And, you know, I, you know, any of my videos have not gotten anything anywhere close to the views that that one had gotten. But um, it definitely opened my mind up to the possibilities and, and um, you know, had me go down further. Oh, and then, um, yeah, so the film festival came out of um, me wanting to, um, uh, you know, see more of this stuff. Like I, I, you know, I had done my own, um, but I knew that there were other people who were creating lots of, lots of uh, drone videos and, and we didn't have a drone film festival on the West Coast. So yeah. I'm like, okay, I want to start my own. And uh, so I started Flying Robot and then basically opened up submissions to anybody uh, who wanted to submit from around the world and made it free or super cheap free, I think at the, the beginning. And, um, and it's still very inexpensive. I think it's like 10, 15 bucks per, is the, the last, uh, fee that we would charge, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, for the last festival that we had done. But um, yeah, did that. Did it three years in a row. And, uh, 2015, 16, 17. Yes. And uh, it's been on hiatus since. Uh, but coming back. Uh, I do want to bring it back, but you know, like we every, want you to bring it back. I know a lot of people want me to bring it back. Yeah. I'm definitely inspired to bring it back. Um, but the realities are, uh, you know, sponsors, funding. That's right. Um, it's hard and, work. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and and finding other people who. Um, are willing to work on the project. And let's get DJI. Let's get them to sponsor. Well, DJI was a sponsor uh, two years for the second festival, um, but they uh, they were uh, they weren't a money sponsor. And that's the thing. A lot of people are willing to give you gear, but it, oh. I found after the first year it was harder to get people to actually cough up cash. So finding getting that kind of dialed in more because there is real you know actual costs that are involved during the festival. You know, even though it is a very lean festival compared to some other film festivals around the world. Um, you know, we we do it at the Roxy Theater here in San Francisco, which is fairly inexpensive. Yeah. Um, the the platform to process everything on is, is basically free, um, and the hey, yo Eddie. Next time you need some money, <laughs> you just come see me. I got a guy. You got a guy? All right. What's what do I gotta what do I gotta give up for that? Don't worry about it. Just right. let me know. I'll take care of you. We'll get your festival. All right. Background. Sounds good. And it's definitely not something that like a VC would want to fund, and it's not something I would want to take VC funding for because like there's no way you're gonna take a film festival and make it you know into. To like into like you know yeah. Sundance or something. Yes, right? yes. I can so. talk to Polly. Talk to who? Polly. Polly. Polly Shore. <laughs> Never mind. Yeah. All right, you're trying to make a, a yeah. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> um, but nonetheless, yeah, I, I definitely would love to keep yeah. it going. But it's it's at this point. Um, it's likely it's not going to happen this year. Um, we'll have to reevaluate whether it's going to happen next year. I would love for it to happen again next year, and I'm definitely thinking hard and fast about it. Um, and we'll certainly make an announcement if it's gonna, if and when it will happen. Awesome, and hopefully there are um, people that are either watching or that um, are involved in the space that want to help make Flying Robot film festivals happen around sure. the world. I think that's it's a great idea. I'd love to federate it. Yeah, that'd be great. It's a great idea. Like you said, it when you first can see the perspective of the drone that's flying while you're flying it you're like oh my god there's so much more to life than just my 
be me being in my body and looking. And then that awakening is so valuable. And then if you can make it into fun games that people can play, fun videos that people can make, um, and actually, we have the winner of the 2017. Yeah, I was go say, ahead. Just yes, before you before get into that, that, I wanted okay. to say so you're kind of making a good point here where, um, <laughs> you pause it, sorry. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the, the perspective and the fun aspect of drones also leads to drone racing, which is uh, very popular. Which, yeah, and we've had categories for that in the festival for a while now. But drone racing gives you that, um, you know, just quickly, drone racing basically is you're wearing goggles and you're flying the drone as if you're sitting in the cockpit, in the cockpit which yeah. is way different than standing on the ground with a, with a, with a screen yeah. and you know, doing a line of sight. You're right? like in VR environment yeah, in I mean, the perspective of the yeah, drone. Yeah. It's not quite true VR, but it is. it is. It does feel that way because you, it is, you are seeing camera input into your eyes directly with everything else being blocked out, but it is kind of a mono. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a mono uh, signal right now, but it's amazing because you know if you look, there's tons of amazing uh, F, what's called FPV, first-person view, drone flyers um, uh, on the internet right now. They're that, so cool. Oh, yeah. those videos are amazing, right? These and these guys are so good at um, at, at being able to fly um, and do do acrobatic tricks, tricks and yeah. this whole stuff. Yeah. Um, and and I've we'll get to this in a second, but as a result of that, I've gotten to know a lot of these drone these drone. Um, uh, uh, you know, racers and ended up starting a company with uh, a few of them called X-Class. And so we are uh, an organization that makes large-scale drones for drone racing. Or we are a dr- large-scale drone race league. So we have specs on how to build them, mm-hmm. and then people build them, and then we have uh, races that people can come to and be a part of. Yeah. Um, so that's another tangent in the, in the drone world that I've kind of gone down. Um, but anyway, let's get back to the creativity stuff. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. The democratization of the um, drone technologies for creative purposes. Yeah. yeah. FPV is so cool. Yeah. There's like people yeah. that are flying it in the safari around like totally. And that's only stuff. growing. Yeah. I mean, as, as the, again, quality of the cameras and the, um, yeah. and, the, and the transmission systems get better. So what we're looking at here, shall, shall I describe? Please. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, a Bulgarian filmmaker who, um, uh, it, who created uh, this video, which is the... Uh, uh, one best of show uh, in the last Flying Robot Film Festival, uh, as well as the, um, uh, I think it was the LOL WTF category winner. So basically <laughs> swept the awards that year. And it's a top-down view of this parkour guy basically running across all these amazing places in Bulgaria um, and, and you know being very creative with it. That was a little, little kind of video game montage. Yeah, that was all funny. this top-down perspective. And it's to music. The music's actually pretty good on this. Um, and then the, the perspective kind of changes on you too. Yeah, like, it, like you're looking at it and you always think it's a top-down sort of thing, but then occasionally you'll see him do something different and then it takes you for a few seconds to realize that it's actually not a top-down view anymore, it's actually a side view. Side view, yeah. yeah like when yeah. he climbs a building. Um, yeah. But anyway, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant film. It's I, I so it. good. I never it's get so bored good. of watching it and, and I think this just kind of epitomizes um, you know, the creativity that you can really do with what's uh, possible. With what's possible, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, because it's it's definitely it's it's good traditional filmmaking combined with acrobatics and um, you know here this is the side side shot I was talking about. So he's actually crawling up the side up of up the side of a building. Yeah, and and it's framed upside down. He's, he's going, going down, down but, the yeah, building, but it basically it's just like taking down. the camera angle and warping it ninety degrees. And, wow! And, but since your mind is already looking at it, it's top yeah. down, you, you kind of think it's it's still the ground. So, Eddie, it's so important for us to get this rebirth back so that people can kind of crowdsource their creative ideas and submit them into the film festival and then have um, flying robots and all the cool footage that has never been thought of 
be, be creatively brought back to the world. Like, who would have, who thinks about things like this? We need young people submitting this type of stuff to inspire us to have a different view on reality. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's we'll so, make it happen again. It's so important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and we'll see how we can help. We really want yeah. to see this happen. Oh Let my me, God, the yeah, the coins. Right, uh, right. Yeah, there's so many interesting uh, add-ons that people can do. I mean, the thing is also, I think one of the challenges now too is because drones have become so ubiquitous, and anybody can really buy one off the you know off the shelf or, or on Amazon or whatever. Um, you know, it's not hard to learn how to fly. I mean, obviously, being coming up with a creative idea and doing something interesting is, is the harder bar, and that's always fun to see what people can actually do. And so in some ways, because the, of the ubiquity of the technology and the tools, that offers a lot more people the, the, the potential to create something amazing. Um, yes. So that's great, but yes. at the same time, it's just a lot more shit content that's also being created, that's right. you know? And yeah, that's both. fine, it's yeah. totally valid. People should be able to create whatever they want, um, but it just makes it uh, a little harder to find, I think, the diamond in the rough sometimes. Okay. That's 100% the case. We were just talking about that um, uh, with a lot of passion, actually, the conversation between the democratization that's happening with the exponential technologies and the signal-to-noise ratio that's happening. Right. So uh, how do you um, both enable the tech to be democratized, uh, to, but then also keep stay very vigilant with what signal, what you consider signal, and making sure to uplift that um, further into the world and that's a great question. Uh, it's a great thing to try and figure out because there's so much noise that comes with the, with the platforms being completely um, opened up the way that they have been. So, okay, so, and so now we're talking like droning has blown up so much that this has even made the government, the Federal Aviation Administration, try and figure out how the fuck they're going to handle this. It's no longer the wild, wild west. Yeah. yeah, so teach us about what this is like. So in the early days, there were really no rules around drones specifically. Um, they, uh, and you could pretty much get away with flying anywhere and um, pretty much doing anything. As long as nobody got hurt, nobody really cared. Uh, now, there's a lot more restrictions. Uh, you can't fly, there's just air, certain areas you just can't fly at all, such as national parks. Airports? Um, uh, airports are verboten, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, the, I mean, there were, there were there originally were blanket um, no-fly zones around airports if you were, uh, you know, a hobbyist or so. But now, as a if you're a commercial pilot, you can get um, authorization around certain parts of the airspace. So it's become a bit more nuanced and a bit more dialed in. So um, if you, let's say, need to do a shoot, uh, you know, east of the... Um, uh, uh, Oakland Airport or something like that, if it's like maybe a half a mile away, you could probably get authorization to do it because it's not going to be right in the flight path of the plane. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's an automated system now that basically creates kind of a segmented um, zone around every airport, every major airport. Yeah. And if you're within a zone that isn't directly affected by the flight path and you're a commercial pilot, you can usually get authorization for it. But it's taken a long time to get to that. Um, let's see, and obviously for good reason. Obviously, there's a lot of people who are just you know don't know what they're doing and they're flying and you know getting close to airplanes and um, you know it, it, as much hype as there's been around drones intersecting with airplanes, um, there's been maybe one, and it's even even unclear if that's even there was one uh, I think collision with a Black Hawk helicopter or something like that, but there's been no actual. Um, reports of an airplane actually hitting a drone um, that's been proven. Right? There's been a lot of sightings and things like that, but, but um, I, so not to say that the danger isn't real, but I think the hype, especially because it's a new technology, tends to become greater than the reality of, of the actual danger. 
the nuance with the national parks too will be important because yeah you want people to naturally be able to explore national parks without hearing you know sure. above but yeah. also you want people to that can't go to the national parks to be able to watch a pretty beautiful uh, right. drone footage of that as well. So yeah, the nuance yeah. there. And so, I mean, and, and the answer to that is you have a permitting system. And that's supposed to be what's, what happens with national parks, but they, there is no way to get a permit, uh, from what I understand. Uh, they, just, they just deny them a blanket. Even though they say that's the way to, to be able to fly in a national park is to get a permit. But unless you're like National Geographic or something like that, it's, it's pretty much hard to, to make that happen. Um, what it, happens if you get caught doing it? Uh, so it, it depends on what you get caught doing. If you get caught doing something uh, that uh, has created, that's hurt somebody or created danger, uh, where, where you're actually putting people in danger, then the FAA is going to be a lot more uh, interested in, in, in what you're doing and they're going to likely want to fine you. you know, they have different levels of enforcement, but they, uh, they can certainly fine you. Um, a good amount of hefty, money. Hefty, yeah. Yeah, hefty amount. Yeah. So we, we've, and people have been fined. It definitely happens. Um, and from what I understand, enforcement is supposed to, to actually become um, more uh, prevalent than it has been uh, up until now. Um, so I, I, I think that's good uh, for the most part um, because the government and regulators are understanding, are getting some of those nuances. They understand that drones do have useful purposes. Um, we're not just talking about filmmaking, but we're talking about search and rescue is actually a huge one. A lot of people's lives have been saved wow. by drones finding them out in the wilderness somewhere. Um, Whoa! Um, so you you so so if like in cases of maybe like avalanches or like yeah absolutely. okay so yeah. so you can kind of like send a team of drones out to look for um, humans with maybe like thermal sensing or exactly like yeah they, there there are floor sensors thermal sensors um, so that's definitely used to find heat signatures of of um, missing people uh, so that, you know. Um, Parent, uh, elderly with, with Alzheimer's who go wandering out and you know leave their home and they go wandering out in the woods and don't know where they are. Yeah, that's happened. That, there's been several cases where um, people have been located who, you know, under those conditions. Uh, and then um, I was going to say, uh, oh, fires as well. So forest fires, huge one. You know, you can kind of it's it's a way to again for search and rescue, but also to to see from a bird's eye view where fires are, and structure fires especially. I think a lot of fire departments are now wanting to have drones because they can fly a drone over a structure and they can actually see where the hot spots are. They can, they can find out exactly where to attack a fire Whoa. with a lot more certainty than they could just by looking from the ground. Yeah. So, so that's becoming, I, I, I predict within five to 10 years, every fire department's gonna have a drone for that purpose. Yeah, yeah in the amount of creativity that has yet to be unleashed by the power of drones um, being used in across all these fields that you're listing. This is another one of the reasons why the, I think the Flying Robot Film Festival needs to um, uh, become more popular and, and around the world. Yeah. And you'll have all these different cases. It's like you can have like an entrepreneurial arm as well of people that are trying to think about using drones for all these different ideas that, yeah, I we, love that. Yeah, totally. And we have a, a category, Drones for Good, which, drones which for is, good. is exactly it's that, excellent. where we highlight um, the, the positive uses. Um, one, of our, one of our winners from the first or second year is a Zipline, and they are now one of the um, largest nonprofit organizations. I don't know if, actually, I don't know if they're a nonprofit. I think they are. But they, um, they're delivering... Um, blood and medicine to uh, rural areas in Africa, in, very, in countries in Africa. So, you know, in a lot of, a lot of developing countries, you've got horrible roads and it, it'll take, you know, hours to, to get uh, medical help some, into a village somewhere. But with, with what, what, um, what Zipline is doing in, uh, I think, Uganda and 
probably getting the countries wrong, but they've got a few countries where, they're, where, where they build these hubs, these spaceports, and they can just load up a bag of blood or medicine in the payload of a, of a fixed-wing drone. And they've got all locals that are operating it, too. They train local, uh, you know, the local people there to run, the, run these things, and they package them, and they can have uh, that stuff delivered within 30 minutes pretty much anywhere. So. And then what about, um, I feel like I should ask you about this before we get into the last video, which is that, um, what do we? What should we do about like the ethics around and morals around how to use drones for benevolent purposes? Right. Um, yeah, using them for like autonomous war and right. using them for all these other um, e e things that are, we consider right. ailments or yeah issues. Sure. Uh, yeah. What I, do you think? I mean, in some ways, I feel like it's it's similar to most other technologies that can be used for good or bad. I mean, it's interesting because drones, I think, you know, in 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 the collective consciousness has been used for, for war fighting, you know, for, for war and for killing people and for the U.S. government using it to kill people in, uh, you know, um, Afghanistan and, uh, and Pakistan and things like that. Um, that's one use that I'm definitely not a fan of and I would not like to see that, uh, you know, become its primary <laughs> use. But at the same time, it is a technology that can be used for uh, benevolent purposes and used for nefarious purposes. And like all technologies that can be used in that way, um, I think they need to be approached in a thoughtful manner and regulated in a way that, you know, that promotes the good over the bad. And it also it's a moral dilemma. I mean, obviously, because, you know, our own government is, is making drones that, are, that can be used to kill, I think we as a people have to take a look at that and say, is this, is this the direction we want to go? And do we want to, you know, do we want to have an autonomous war battlefield? Do we, you know, is this, is, this, is this the future? Do we, I mean, the future should be the, there are no wars, right, obviously, but, yes. but the reality is yes. that's probably not going to be, be our, our near future. Future. A deep um, right. uh, work on ourselves and our collective can potentially get us there. Correct. This is just yeah. a quick um, oh, yeah. uh, the example of um, the video of the barge that was flying around the Golden Gate Bridge airspace. Yeah. So this is uh, yeah this is recent actually. Uh, over July fourth, I was asked by uh, a shipping company to um, fly a drone around this uh, uh, container ship that was coming into port, uh, and there's. Uh, uh, Four tugboats that are shooting water cannons around it. And it's kind of a salute to America, is how they were, is how this French uh, company was <laughs> was um, positioning it. But they they unfurled these American flags on the sides of the um, of the boat there and uh, brought it under the Golden Gate. And so yeah, I was tasked with flying a drone around it. And um, for anybody who's wondering at home, uh, there, this was not launched from the surrounding areas where, you're, where, where it is illegal to launch from because it's all national park area, but it was launched from a moving boat. And so you can, this is, this is totally legal as long as you're doing it from, not, uh, from, a, from a neutral area uh, such as the water. The water, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's critical, make sure you yep. do not get in trouble. And, yeah. and actually, if you, if, you, uh, if you can, I don't know if you can scrub through this, Ron, but if you get to the point where it goes underneath the bridge, I do a fly around the other side of it, and that part gets a little more interesting. Yeah, so you can kind of see the tugs there, and then we go under the bridge. Yeah, you can probably let it play from here. Gosh, those things are massive. They, I can't, we ship 90% of all world trade happens by sea, and all of those containers are filled with different materials from around the world. There's oh, yeah. cars in there, there's goods from China, right. plastics, uh, all different types of, some people recycle cardboard back through those. Yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy, it's true. This had just come up from LA, but I think it was uh, destined for, yeah, somewhere far east after that. Um, those things are insane. Yep, Scra Ron, why don't you go ahead and just uh, scrub a little bit further. There's, I think once we get underneath the bridge there, 
um, I kind of come around the front of the boat, and that's a little more interesting. Here, here we go. Do a little, see the little show they got going on. It's the first time I had uh, ridden on a tugboat before, and that was a lot, a lot of fun. So I was on something similar to that. Yeah. Um, that's wasn't that didn't have water shooting off of it, uh, and uh, that was. Uh, Pretty rad because the the not not only was the boat being used to ferry us out there to uh, you know to be able to fly the drone, but the um, it was a working tug. So after we were done with the shoot, the tug actually had to push help push this boat into port in in, in Portland, or sorry in uh, in Oakland, yeah. in the port of Oakland. And so just the experience of oh was, did it just jump to the end? that's the end. Oh, okay, the end. maybe I didn't give it the right one, but that's that's all right. Um, the uh, yeah, so just seeing what a working tug does yeah. was, was pretty rad. You know, I'd never, uh, never really seen that experience, but yeah, basically the tug comes all the way to the very back of the boat, kisses the back of the the, the, um, the boat, and um, they toss a line down. They tie, tie the line, and basically they, the the uh, ship cuts its engines, and the tugboats are the ones that are kind of maneuvering it into so port. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's wild. Yeah, yeah, those small things can move the big yeah. barge. I mean, they're, yeah. those things have, they have massive engines and they have like giant, um, I don't know, fins that go in the water. Like they can basically, there's, they, can, they can break. Like they can, they can actually take a, a multi-hundred ton ship and basically break it to almost a, a, a standstill, you know, one or two times. Very interesting. It's, it's insane. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, Modern ingenuity. Yeah, and so then those go um, always on the um, big, at the be at the beginnings and ends of well, the way, trips. Uh, so in the Bay Area, they they're required uh, to um, whenever a, a, a commercial ship comes into the Golden Gate, you have what are called pilots that meet them out uh, like eleven miles out or so um, before they come into the gate. And the pilots are uh, based in the Bay Area. They go out, they meet the ship, they yeah. actually climb up a rope ladder onto the ship yeah. and then they take control of the helm. So they're, they're, the, they're the, the pilot in command. Because they have so much experience bringing barges in and out of the Correct. bay itself. There's a lot of traffic, there's, there's um, you know, areas that are dredged and areas that are not, not dredged. dredged yeah. And so they just know exactly how to, the, the right path to take yeah. to, to get in and, to, and, and do it right. So yeah. Yeah, because otherwise you've got, you know, got captains that are obviously experienced, but they're not experienced with Necessarily with a with a with a high density area such as the Bay Area, exactly. and, and you know nobody wants to have a or ship. Singapore is also I'm sure yeah I'm sure this is common with probably all these ports, ports yeah. yeah. And then what about um, the most recent piece of content? Also, that was very recent, but the, this one too is very interesting. This is um, people playing Dungeons and Dragons behind bars. Yes. Yeah, and. You, so you also do this creative video production as well. And it's interesting that, um, you know, I also spent some time in jail. And when I did, I had a good amount of, of these experiences where I found meaning um, in these ways to build community around, um, around similar habits. And you, these are like creative, cooperative, um, trying to take the emotions of other people while you play these games. Yeah. So I think this is a very important piece of content. And you're also avid. Dungeons and Dragons. I haven't played D&D in a while, but I certainly used to for, you know, when I was younger. Um, yeah, just the, the, the setup on that is the, um, uh, so uh, my, uh, a friend of mine, Elizabeth, she's a producer and a filmmaker uh, for a lot of uh, documentary work and television work. And so this has been a passion project of hers for a while to basically interview um, 
prisoners in and out of the, the California jail prison system um, about their use of, of playing D&D. &D. And, and as it turns out, in certain prisons, they, they, they do this pretty, pretty regularly. And um, in some prisons, they've had to fight for the right to do that because in some prisons, they see it as, you know, as a form of play and they just take it all away. But you know, the, 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 the big benefits are um, you know, collaborating, community, understanding people, having empathy, um, you know, uh, critical yes. thinking, all these skills that once they get out of prison um, will help them um, not go back into prison ultimately, right? Yes. Basically, you know, they're, they're playing when they come out and they're making connections and they're engaged in something that is not um, what they did prior to um, getting thrown in jail. And I think in most, most prisons, they're set up in such a way to be punitive, not re re restorative or re rehabilitative, at least in this country. And so that's why we have such a high recidivism rate um, in prisons is, is that you know, they come out and they've got, people have no idea what to do, right? They, they go back to their old ways because that's what they know. Um, and so D&D &D, um, helps to, in role playing in general, like helps to give, um, them another option or give them something else to focus on and it turned and you know it's I think it remains to be seen but there's a lot of evidence to show that um, that those that are playing D&D &D and, and really get involved in it don't go back to prison you want to watch the video yeah yeah let's do it okay there's D&D &D at nearly every institution in California prisons are the most segregated places in the world the D&D table was one of the few places where you could have blacks and whites playing together. I see a lot of potential come out of people when they start playing these games, being able to put themselves in someone else's shoes. I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons in prison for 35 years. I mean, we, we were hardcore. We'd play from uh, as soon as we'd come back from breakfast to lock up. My name is Elizabeth. I'm a documentary filmmaker and the creator of Let's Play, a film about the controversy around Dungeons and Dragons in the United States Department of Corrections. So we used to run underground games like with notebooks or anything. We didn't ha actually have the actual books, we had these photocopies. They took his dice, I think, and he sued to get possession of his dice and Dungeons and Dragons materials. That is a homemade 20-sided dice. In the process of interviewing and directing film shoots, I started to learn all about the world of Dungeons and Dragons behind bars. Dungeons and Dragons is one of the few activities that sprung up organically in the prison system that's helping inmates prepare for life on the outside. It's creative, it's cooperative, and it's a way for inmates to express and explore difficult emotions and trauma vicariously through role play. You have to ask why we lock people up. And if the reason is for rehabilitation so that we get somebody who's gonna be better on the other end, then D&D totally fits with that. Thank you so much for supporting this campaign and for joining me in asking, does everybody have the right to game? Yeah, so this is a Kickstarter project that just launched today uh, for uh, funding this documentary on, uh, called Let's Play, D&D um, &D Behind Bars. Uh, and so I, uh, I myself, uh, and Noel, uh, who is uh, a friend and partner from the um, Secret Alley, which is a space that I'm a part of, um, created the video. And uh, yeah, it's live now, so they're trying to fund it. We've got about a month to go. Um, but yeah, if you just, just go to Let's Play or just go to Kickstarter and look for, or just probably have links in the, in the bottom. We'll, put, the we'll put the link in the bio for everyone to go and check that out and, yep. and back it on Kickstarter so we can get, like you said, decreased recidivism, more empathy, more cooperation, more creativity. You can, there's so many studies of putting a rat inside of a cage without any games. And then if you put a rat inside of a cage that has different objects and things to play with, its neural infrastructure actually blossoms. The 
architecture yeah. grows better than if it's just constricted to nothing. Yeah. So I yeah. mean, it's, it seems like common sense when you think about it. It's like if you, if you lock people up and you don't have, them, have anything for them to do, then they're, they're, they're going to kind of lose their mind and <laughs> they're not going to want to do anything. And if you do give them something to occupy their brain or something, you know, that, that um, allows them to, um, to be functional in some way, then that's usually going to be, it's going to have a positive income, a positive outcome. And the second chances become more effective because they have went through these exercises right. more. Yeah, all this type of stuff, less recidivism. Um, okay, a couple other questions on the way out. I mean, I'm really excited for all your future um, content that you're going to be producing. Yeah, th this type of stuff is great. The Let's Play and D&D Behind Bars also um, drone content is going to be really exciting with the future of live streaming. Actually, I kind of want to ask you about that. What is the future of video production? Ron and I joke quite a bit that at some point there's probably not going to need to be an actual uh, interviewer. There's always going to be somewhat, something that's parsing, maybe just AI's talking. There's not going to be someone to be the technical director. It'll just be the cameras auto-switching while people talk. Um, there'll be just drones following you while you go about. I mean, there's so many of these different. I hope I'm dead before that. Yeah. What do you well, think about all these different things? Sure. So you just have robots interviewing robots? I don't know. I don't know. They have access to the internet, and we have access to just our wetware of our brain. And right. I don't. Yeah. Well, and then also, I mean, with, with um, you know, facial recognition scanning and AI, you know, there's you've probably been hearing stories about how these data sets have been, you know, being leaked into like the, the Chinese army or something like that. They're being used to basically train their data sets to understand different faces. Um, you know, I can see that being, uh, you know, what's the stop, what's one vision of the future is that you've got uh, robots that take on the personas of people that they've learned about through these data sets and then um, other robots that are, you know, interacting with them in some way. Uh, I mean, I don't think that's the future of filmmaking. Well, actually, you know, one thing that's, that's sort of interesting, I think, in a, in a controversial way right now is this whole idea of deep fakes, yeah. which, is the ability to, which is essentially the ability to create a video with somebody in it that looks and acts like the real person, but it's not that person at all. And so it's faking, faking a video clip of somebody. I could see that being completely detrimental to let's say an election or something like that. Truth. You're right, exactly. Well, truth is already compromised in so many ways, but I mean, it just seems like another, really, another way to um, make truth even less findable, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so my, my hope for the future of filmmaking, just, just quickly to sum up, I, I think, um, you know, it's, uh, the technology keeps evolving, we get better cameras, we have better technology to switch shots, um, certainly to, to uh, better editing technology and, and certainly AI that can you know mix things up and, and help with all that. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I think there needs to be a human behind it who can direct that creativity or tell that story. Because ultimately, any video content that's being created needs to have a story behind it. And if you're not telling a story, even if it's five seconds, like what's the point? Yeah, yeah. Used for benevolence and ethic, ethical evolution so that it's not used for malevolence, all this type of thing is so important and, and hopefully that the future is more creatively enabling with these technologies yeah. erupting, easier to find the signal, all these types of things. Right. Eddie, where do we come from beyond this 3D reality? Do we come from somewhere else into these Earth suits to play on the planet? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, it's... Um funny I've been reading Michael Pollan's book um, recently mm -hmm. and I like his idea his, his notion that maybe it's maybe it's the mushroom aliens that have basically um, sent 
signal, you know, th that humans have become, have grown from, I don't know if it's his idea necessarily, but he talks about it in his book, but that, you know, apes or, or, uh, or um, homo, pre-homo sapiens have evolved into homo sapiens because they ate some mushrooms or something and, be, and, and then their brains started to, you know. The stoned ape theory. Yeah, exactly, the stoned <laughs> ape theory. So, you know, maybe, that, but I don't know, I don't know if that's helped us because now we've got, we're now, you know, a thinking species that can, that can basically wipe out the, the planet. So maybe that wasn't a good gamble by the aliens. Um, but, <laughs> you know, um, that's one theory that, it, that we are just, uh, you know, that we, we aren't, you know, maybe it's a simulation, maybe it's a, uh, maybe it's, um, you know, maybe, maybe it is, it is, uh, you know, maybe it, it, maybe it is other, other beings that are, you know, that are playing a game and we are merely, I guess I would make it a simulation with it. I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> Sorry, I, yeah, for that. I think you, you went across a lot of really interesting on, points there. You touched on a lot of interesting yeah, ones. I was jumping around. I'm still yeah. learning. I'm trying to figure it out myself. Yeah, yeah. Likewise, always a student of the universe trying, yeah. to, trying to get to the ultimate nature of reality is not just a physical planet orbiting a star. There is way more oh, that's, right. yeah. that's deeper than this that exists here that we're not just going to don't just stay at the surface. Get deeper. Yeah. Yeah. And if you can. Find another dimension to explore. Yeah. Go to, you know, Earth on, on, in a different dimension and see what that looks like. Even closing your eyes and just expanding yourself out of your own body is in itself just beyond what is your normal five sensory experience yeah. of, of life. And, That's true. Yeah, you know, meditation gets you this, psychedelics gets you this, all different types of ways up the mountain, um, connecting to nature, all yeah. these types of things can get you there. Agreed. And then how about... Do you think we're in a simulation? You know, I used to think that, the, that it was an easy answer to say no, but now, I, I don't know, as I'm learning more, I think maybe, I think it's a distinct possibility that we could be. Or that we are, we, we are in a simulation and then we are just merely, but we have some autonomy as characters in that simulation. So maybe the, the, the stage and the setting is simulated, but, are, but, but we are just merely we are beings with some limited amount of autonomy within that world, you know, kind of like, what's the movie where, um, um, what's his name, um, oh, space right now, uh, where, uh, what's his name, um, uh, any ideas I, around the movie? Like what was that? Yeah. Ideas for the movie? Uh, who am I thinking of? Jim Carrey. Okay, Jim Carrey plays the character. He's the who's who's like um, living. Uh, he's basically. Oh, Truman Show. Yes, Truman Show. Yeah, maybe it's maybe it's just, it's maybe. great. Yeah, like the Truman Show is basically <laughs> a setting. We're in just which being he's, flipped through our channels. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people are flipping through our there channels. We're, we're yeah. the Truman Show. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's a great aspect to the to that conversational point as well. Agreed. <laughs> And then what do you think is the most beautiful thing in the world? Uh, oh, being alive. Yeah. And tell us more. Why? Because if you're not alive, then you can't, you can't really appreciate nature and other humans and, um, and all the things that come from that, you know? I mean, who, it's hard to say because I, I've never experienced what it's like to be dead yet. So I, I don't know, or at least I don't, not that I can remember. Um, so I guess maybe that's, that's, uh, that's a very biased point of view, but I feel like um, 
being alive and allowing other, other beings to be alive is probably the most beautiful thing. That there is something rather than nothing. It's nice. It's nice to be alive. Eddie, yeah. I love it. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. Sure thing, Alan. We wonderful. really appreciate yeah. you. It was wonderful to be on. Good. I'm yeah. happy you had a Thanks good for time. having me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huge thank you. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We greatly appreciate it. We'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments below on the episode. Let us know what you're thinking about all these different fields we talked about. Talk more to your friends, families, coworkers, people online on social media about the role of video and art and film and drones and also taking it to cool places like the prison system and being able to make great content like that and submitting to cool festivals like the Flying Robot International Film Festival. Help that grow, help that explore. And also find the links in the bio, eddie.com, the YouTube channel, the Twitter page, also that link to the Kickstarter project. That'll be down there too, go and check that out. Shout out to Ron Vargas for producing and directing. Thank you very much, Ron. And also support the artists, entrepreneurs, the organizations around the world that you believe in, spiritual leaders, support them. Our links are below, Patreon, PayPal, cryptocurrency, design, cool merchant, get paid, all that's below. And go and build the future. Manifest your dreams into the world. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you soon. Peace. Peace.